to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 62, Art and Faith with Makoto Fujimura. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're discussing art and faith with Makoto Fujimura, who is the founder of the International Arts Movement and the Fujimura Institute. He's also the author of a new book called Art and Faith, A Theology of Making. Team members from the two cities on the episode include Amber Bowen, Dr. Josh Carroll, Grace Sengalang Ng, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Amber, Grace, and Josh, what were some of the takeaways that you had from this discussion with Mako? This is a conversation I've been looking forward to for quite some time because I've been such a fan of Mako's work. And I think he is such an important voice for our era, particularly a very fractured time, a time full of cynicism and suspicion and division and hostility. And I think the kinds of things that Mako is doing that he describes in our conversation today are such fruitful ways for us as Christians to be thinking about how we live out what we've been given in Christ. And I really appreciated just his passion for art, his passion for the people that he's communicating to with his art, and and just his passion for Jesus Christ. I mean, it just came through in everything that he talked about. It was very Christ-centered and his just desire to make the invisible visible and just represents how God is working in the world among his people. So this episode is part two of our series on theology and art. And last week, for our listeners, remember, we talked with Dr. Esther Meek about philosophy and art. And Esther and Mako are really good friends and have learned very much from one another. And we've learned a lot from the two of them. And so it's a real treat to have a conversation this week with Mako to carry forward a lot of the things that we talked about with Dr. Meek last week. Yeah, and so much of what we discussed with with Mako really centered on loss and and grief and thinking about these things in the light of 2020 and 2021. And and Mako was reflecting on this also in light of his own experience uh, as having been somebody who was there in New York City uh, on on 9-11 at at ground zero. And really just thinking about the relationship of art to loss and sorrow and and, and grief and, and just hearing a lot of his really helpful reflections on this. Yeah, he's one of those artists that helps us be able to sit in our grief and be able to look at the fractures and the broken pieces and grieve with Christ uh, in those moments. But yet also through his art, he gives us this way of seeing the kind of healing that Christ brings and the kind of promises, ways in which Christ works in our lives, uh, particularly with the this uh, kintsugi technique, which binds broken pottery together using gold. And it's such an incredible metaphor for how Christ makes all things new and how we, he restores and how what was fractured in us becomes part of our glory. One of the things that, of course, our listeners won't be able to see is that actually during the conversation, he he held up and showed off some of these vessels that had been mended together with this gold technique. Another thing you couldn't see is us wiping the tears from our eyes in the conversation. Um, it was just so beautiful um, as he talked about uh, the beauty and brokenness and how much um, hope and healing there is, even in the pain and loss and grief. Um, So I really enjoyed our conversation. All right, and here's our conversation with Makoto Fujimura. Thanks so much for joining us, Mako. It's great to be here. So how about we begin by talking a bit about your book, Art and Faith, A Theology of Making. I wonder if maybe we could start by hearing a little bit about how you would define making. Mm, good question. Um, part of the premise of the book is, is to uh, place these definitions on God creating. And, and so everything that I try to do in the book is to in in a sense not to place you know anthropocentric way that we have to 
you know, trying to define terms and 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 then the definition may keep shifting. So, um, but biblically, God is a maker, um, and so what does it mean that we, as His creation, be making? Um, and and that that's an entry point into a great discussion about what making is. Um, you know, obviously we cannot do what God does, which is create something out of nothing, ex nihilo. Um, so in, in what sense are we uh, invited into uh, the process of divine making? And I, I think more often than not, that conversation becomes very truncated. Um, because we um, define either making or art or uh, theology in our terms, and um, the, my my attempt is to, you know, since I am an artist, I think about the relationship between me as an artist and um, what I'm creating, and, and and furthermore, what the audience may. Um, may take out of that experience or, um, you know, in response to my work. So I, I'm always thinking about what, what, what it means to have this relationship between a maker and, 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 and the creature. Um, and while there's this distinction between them, um, I, I think we, we, we are astonished when we really realize uh, how, um, the, the, how strong the invitation is to create into the new creation. Mako, last week we had a great conversation with Dr. Esther Meek about yeah. philosophy and art. Yeah. And um, I noticed you talk quite a bit about different philosophical assumptions that we have, particularly as moderns, and the challenge that that presents to us, especially in our relationship to art. You mentioned with Darwinian framework, there's no space for art. And in fact, art is sometimes seen as this decadent, almost manipulative thing mm -hmm. to try to attract a mate or something like that. Right. And But you also talk about how Christians have kind of suspicion against art as well. And I'm wondering if you can explain that a little bit more. Yeah. So so, so it's great to be in conversation with uh, my friend Esther over this podcast as well. And uh, I quote her often. Um, she is uh, someone that that I, I I think is embedded in in the very thesis of, of the book, and right the Darwinian universe really can't account for uh, role of beauty or mercy, uh, and yet they try right. There, there's plenty of books out there trying to account for beauty uh, in the natural world, uh, but but in my mind it it just has a wrong. Um, epistemological framework um it, it you know you 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 start out with a huge assumption which is that survival of the fittest or or, or at least the um understanding of limited resource environment that na nature provides is the source of whatever it is that you witness in in nature and that's a huge assumption um now you you can certainly scientifically in a closed system, test this out and, and find it to be true. But if if there's a, let's say a pinhole in that closed system, then everything falls apart because the uh, assumption cannot hold um, the, the gravity of even that tiny little bit of, um, you know, uh, mishaps in, in the system or, um, and, you know, you, you try to force feed it. Um, and I think Esther's book um, is enormously help, books are enormously helpful uh, to get at why it is that we have this propensity to try to force feed, you know, the, the system that, that, that is indeed closed and uh, limited resource, zero-sum game environments. And you know, it's it's kind of almost like scapegoating. You know, you you try to blame what is inexplicable by placing uh, that um, unknown uh, and and force feeding it into into a system um, which is not set up to answer that question to begin with. So um, you know, so I I like to 
begin by first trying to dismantle some of the presuppositional ways that our culture and and this happens in theology as much as it happens in you know evolutionary uh, sciences. There, there's a certain base assumption that that is more based on industrial efficiency and, and baseline of pragmatism um, and this not of the kind of pure pragmatism that you know William James talked about it's, it's industrial pragmatism and and so again you're justifying everything from how we are to communicate the gospel, for example, um, in, a, in a market system. And, and so, you know, um, a lot of the, um, the you know, el- elder, elder boards of churches tend to be business oriented today um, <laughs> because it is run exactly as a business. Um, and, and then you look back into the Darwinian reality of closed loop uh, competition. Right, so so you you make decisions based on the bottom lines rather than um, perhaps the the real gospel. Uh, so you know these these things do matter, and and I think on the other hand, you you look at uh, capitalistic system, and and the expansive reality of it and gen- generative reality of it. Um, you know, even through this time of. Uh, shutdown and COVID, the extraordinary time where everything everything is facing a paradigm shift. You see them creating new new ideas and new ways of doing things, and and you know that kind of innovation is is there um, perhaps in in a way that really the churches ought to you know understand. This is not a, just about the bottom line of survival, but it's about creating a new way of thinking and doing business and educating and, and so forth. And and all that kind of goes back to what Esther is talking about in, in her books. And and so um, I, I also start there, in fact, in, in my book of, of these um, assumptions that uh, uh, we have about the world. Yeah, you also talk about at different places, but I'm going to read a couple of sentences. This is on page 24. Um, You say, but in order to understand the path toward making into the new, we must first deal with the philosophical assumptions of our days and the modern tendency to base our understanding on knowledge we acquire through rational propositional information. Mm -hmm. Art is another way of knowing the world. And artists are being pushed to the margins because of their intuitive knowledge. And and this is so fascinating for me because you're describing an entirely different epistemic experience compared to what we typically assign as this sort of rationalistic accumulation of facts Mm -hmm. into knowledge. But you're describing a different kind of knowledge. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit more about that (laughs) and how does art do that? It's it's really something because, you know, we, uh, I I use this example in a book of um, trying to make an omelet, right? And, And then you have a recipe, which is the simplest information, you know, possible. I mean, you have the egg and you have a pan and and heat. Um, but you try to make it and um, it turns out it's very difficult to make it like Jack Papin makes his omelets. Um, you know, like why, why is it so difficult, right? So the information knowledge of the recipe um, to what actually is, is, is what you're supposed to be making. Now, then the real test is not whether the omelet looks good or not. It's, it's the taste, right? <laughs> if it doesn't taste good, then, then everything, you know, the, whatever you did, it didn't work. Um, so the test of knowledge is in tasting the omelet, not whether you memorize the recipe well, or that you can even, um, you know, repeat the motions. It's actual taste. So, so the gap between the recipe, the informational knowledge, and the actual somatic knowledge of tasting is huge. And yet we operate in our schools and our churches as if there is no gap. So we take notes, listen to sermon, go through programming, you know, <laughs> or whatever we're interested in. And uh, those things are not, not wrong. It's just that when you think about the omelet, it is as if 
we spend so much time arguing over the recipe, <laughs> never really asking a question, what, what does it make and how does it taste? And my, my simple suggestion is we start from tasting first. <laughs> and, and if it's good, let's go back to the recipe to figure it out rather, rather than, um, you know, like, like starting from the recipe even. So on this topic of epistemic frameworks, I'm wondering if you, we could talk a little bit about abstract art, whether it's uh, painting or, or film. Uh, and I'm curious about this idea of meaning and where does meaning reside with abstract art? Could you help us navigate that a little bit? Yeah, first of all, I struggled with, with abstraction, right? Yeah, as, as Mark Rothko did, I, I, I don't think there is no, I'm not a pure abstract artist um, in, in that sense. I, I am representing something. Um, so the, even though it may look non-representational, it's representation. And, and so it's making invisible uh, what is invisible. And, and so therefore it might be more of a, you know, realism with a capital R than, than, you know, Andrew Wyeth. Um, but, but, you know, I understand the term. I mean, it, it is considered to be non-representational, abstract, expressionism, all that. Um, and I, I don't, you know, fight against it necessarily, but, um, the, the term becomes again something that we, you know, we like certainty, so we like categories, and this is part of what Esther is talking about. Is you know, we we tend to de default into these uh, neat categories as if to say if we could name something as abstract that we understand it, uh, when in fact it's it's almost like a, uh, you know, again, a scapegoating of something that we, are, we either don't understand because it is deeply mysterious or we are afraid of it, uh, that, that we cannot control it. And so, so we end up uh, having all these conversations based on fear rather than what, what it can generate. Um, so I, I say to people, you know, have you ever enjoyed an uh, evening of fireworks? You know, do you like classical music or jazz? Do you like all these things abstract, you know, and we shouldn't be afraid of things that we, we it doesn't have specific uh, rep representational, um, you know, forms. Um, because actually life is in that sense, you know, wide open uh, to mystery. Um, so I, I do think though, having said that, if you want to open up the mysteries of uh, God, if you want to tap into the unknown, um, and this goes back to what, the role of an artist is in society. And I think we are here because we do see things that um, remain mysterious and ambiguous and abstract to the world, but we see reality in them, right? So, so we are creating a touch point or a portal into uh, that which we all long for and yet we can't access. And, and in that sense, you know, a friend of mine recently told, told me something very beautiful. She said, um, you can't be inspired by something that you, you know. <laughs> in order to be inspired, there's mystery involved. There's, there's the unknown. There's the adventure. You, you know, you're, you're painting some, a vista that, that you, want, you want people to explore. And, and uh, you know, if art is to inspire in any way, it, it, by definition, it has to deal with the, the you know mysterious abstraction that that you know people may not understand that well. And you know, if if you're not doing that, you're not in a sense you know uh, participating in this uh, uh, journey of being an artist. So one of the one of the reasons I've found people don't participate in that journey is is because of fear and all the kind of different things too. But, you know, the lay person that'll say, well, Mako, you're talking about taste. You're talking about mm -hmm. um, all these things that are subjective, right? Mm -hmm. So, so it's either an apathy from the subject because like, oh, it's all subjective and they just write it off completely and don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. How would you respond to somebody like that that says, 
things like art and taste and the, and the stuff you're talking about that bridges the gap between, you know, what you're trying to present and how you're doing it. Yeah, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? Yeah. That's what they say. Well, uh, you know, a good omelet is a good omelet. I mean, it's just a universality to it. I mean, some people may don't, you know, are allergic to raw eggs or whatever, you know, and they can't eat it. But so, so I don't, I don't think you know, objectivity and subjectivity plays that big of a role in 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 experience of beauty. Uh, now, you you have certainly cultural variances, and, and those things have to be taken into account. Um, but but I think I think there's there's um, uh, more than that. Somatic knowledge actually is very helpful because it is universal, um, and you know the understanding of beauty in a larger context. Uh, you know. Uh, that too seems to have more likely, you know, and, and people who uh, say that, well, beauty is subjective, so your beauty may not be my beauty, um, is misunderstanding what beauty is. Um, and, and so again, you know, if, if our definition of beauty is my definition of beauty versus your definition of beauty, then of course there's going to be differences. But if if the, if beauty, truth, and goodness are treated like that, it, right from from a, a subjective standpoint, then you know there's no connection in the transcendence of the three. So then we are lost at sea without any anchor of having having these um, ways that we can communicate at all between two strangers trying to get at. The, perhaps the mystery of life, um, and so so it's, it's very important that we start with at least the premise that yes, there are different ways of appreciating beauty in different cultures and different you know different groups and different people, but there's also fundamentally a connection uh, that we get to enjoy uh, as human beings that are universal and that we can communicate. You know, beyond the uh, individual differences. Uh, otherwise, it's not. It's not even you know worth it to communicate. It's, it's not worth anything really. Uh, if if that's totally subjective. Yeah, and Esther talked about last week how a lot of people think that art is just simply subjective self-expression, mm-hmm. and yeah. and that's all it is. And I was thinking as you were talking, if you have a concept of beauty where it's just this thing that you can define completely as an object. You know, I think about the Greeks defining beauty as symmetry, <laughs> you know, yeah. and that, that's yes. what this is. Um, then that doesn't go very far because that seems right. to be like we're mastering this thing that's really a transcendental that we encounter and can never fully get our arms around, but we find ourselves caught up in it. Mm-hmm. But that's also different from saying it's just, I like chocolate, you like vanilla. <laughs> right. You know, there's, there is right. something that we are all caught up in and that is yeah. beauty. Yeah, right. And 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 the, even the notion of liking something, right? I mean, when you when you trace it back, it's it's not the object itself that you're talking. About. It's it's about liking something. So so is that subjective, or or is it you know um, even if it's triggered by different things, different responses, which I I fully appreciate because none of us are made the same way, but. But even love and liking and and and, and you know this this uh, experience of um, being being able to enjoy something. Well, I, I think there's quite a bit of <laughs> universal longing there that that we can be we can be sharing. So, yeah. So I, I I think part of part of part of that you know journey today is so fragmented that people assume certain things to be subjective when when it's really not. You know, there's a lot in common between experiences. Yeah. And just going along with that idea of the universality of beauty and love and longing, I'm just thinking about the universality of emotions um, and feelings and how art taps into that. And so many of our listeners, you know, are experiencing grief in um, so many different ways, whether it be um, passing of a loved one or just 
you know, grieving um, all the different things that are lost in this season, even not just being able to gather and all these kinds of things. So can you talk more about um, the relationship of art, faith, and grief? Um, and I know you um, had talked about John eleven thirty five in your book. Um, if you could talk more about that, that would be great. Wow. So John eleven thirty five is simple, two words, Jesus wept. And uh, I, I spend an enormous amount of time thinking about this. Uh, every Lenten season for the last 15 years, uh, just two words, you know, uh, keep it very simple. And, uh, but it just keeps expanding. Um, and somebody asked me about this Lenten season, like what other passage of scripture do you go to after 2020 and what we're going through now? Uh, Jesus wept. And, and that is so profound, so, such a good tutus presence of God in, in the midst of our suffering that is not that does not make sense it, 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 it you know Jesus came to resurrect Lazarus uh, from the grave so why didn't he go ahead and do that why did he waste time weeping with Mary when all he had to do was take her by her hand and say you little faith you know come with me I'm going to show forth the power of God and, and resurrect your brother uh, so stop crying he doesn't say that <laughs> so there's something going on there. I, I think will remain an eternal mystery, but but also a um, message to those of us who are suffering, who are going through uh, times when we can't explain what is happening, uh, Fudi, um, that some traumas are so deep that you can't fix it. Um, and you you simply have to acknowledge uh, the the dark presence in our lives and 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 Jesus understands that uh, fully and he is present in in those places um, and to me that's fundamentally a uh, pinhole uh, through which we, we can actually see the whole world uh, you know a pinhole camera you know you the world is upside down projected and, and and I think that's the right way of understanding how Jesus saw what he's, you know, he brought to us. And, and so um, to me, there's, you know, theologians talk about common grace, you know, that uh, God gives, grants its grace to believers and non-believers alike. But I, I always, always extend that to talk about common uh, common curse or uh, common suffering um, that we we are able to uh, you know there's no one alive today that has not been in some way affected by this virus um, which is a remarkable statement to make you know when was the last time we had such a universal suffering uh, condition that touches everybody um, and, and that if, if that is statement is true, then that means God's common grace can also be, you know, uh, led by common curse that we can experience grace together with people who may not, who, you know, total strangers on the other side of the uh, side of this earth, um, to share in their suffering. Um, as we go through ours, and that expands our place in the universe, um, and and to be able to commune with those as we go through our broken brokenness, and and to uh, be present with the broken body of of Christ, and and so that you know. Communion suffering of uh, communion of sufferings is is uh, is going to be important. Now, I I since I've been through darkness myself and been through being a ground zero resident in New York and going through 9/11 and trying to go through that, you know, not ten years of trying to recover and knowing the toll that that takes on a person uh, a community 
this is not an easy thing to talk about um, or, or you know you can't talk about this casually but we are, we will be going through uh the after effects of 2020 uh, for some time to come and the psychological toll that is going to um you know uh, be placed upon us is it's going to be far more lingering that we can we can imagine and um so therefore we have work to do in terms of our work to expand our imaginative capacity to for toward suffering of the world and you know as we grieve um we, we should also remember that you know jesus wept and jesus tears are still with us physically um you know i i think of christ's tears because he's he's the son of god didn't disappear into the hardened grounds of bethany or jerusalem they multiplied you know in the air and literally you can uh trace christ's tears expanding as we suffer into the world and and we can be part of the presence of god in 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 people's lives um uh, as they go through suffering well since we're talking about brokenness and loss mm-hmm. i'm wondering if you can share a little bit with us about um is it kintsugi, is that kintsugi how it's yes um yeah what explain to us about that art form and why yeah. you find that so beautiful particularly yeah. within this conversation of grief and loss yeah, so uh, kintsugi is something that I discovered in Japan uh, from Japan lacquer masters, which is a very difficult art, art form, but it's connected with the Japanese tea tradition, uh, notably tea of Senorikyu of 16th century and beyond um, that has created a really a basis of Japanese aesthetic and how you know, Japanese have this understanding of suffering and brokenness that is different from Western mindset. So in Western sense, when something breaks, you fix it, you know, you super glue it back together and make it as if it didn't break again. Well, the Japanese, when <laughs> when an important tea, tea vessel breaks, uh, they look at the fractures and they, they begin to see beauty in them. And they, uh, Japan lacquer masters will mend uh, the bowl so you can reuse it, but they will highlight the fracture or the fissures with gold. Uh, this, this was a bowl done in uh, one of our Kintsugi Academy uh, workshops, and this was done by a friend, friend of mine, designer, Esther Moon, who did this the first time she did Kintsugi. Uh, she did this, so, the, so she uh, mended this part, which was fractured. But then she added these squiggles, <laughs> and and the resulting design is is this beautiful new uh, bowl. So this bowl, um, if it was a traditional kintsugi done on, let's say, a very important teaware, the kintsugi bowl is more valuable than the original, even though the original may be very valuable, because the Japanese understand that the process of mending is is, is some, some in some sense far more important than before uh, the you know the, the unfortunate uh, break that happened and and sometimes you know kin means kin means gold and tsugi means the mend but tsugi also means to pass on to the next generation and uh fractured teaware that have have been used in high tea ceremonies uh, often um, left untouched uh, by the families of tea masters for several generations, they simply pass down the, the stories uh, and they look at the fragments. Each generation looks at them until it is ready to be mended by a Japan master, uh, lacquer master. So, so they, um, it's, it's an incredible metaphor for you know, what I call theology of new creation, where Jesus' wounds are still with him in post-resurrection appearances, which means that, you know, when the Bible talks about through his wounds, we are healed. Those are, you know, wounds of post-resurrection as well as uh, the marks of the uh, cross. 
And so in some strange, mysterious way, God looks at our wounds. And somehow that is retained in new creation, which, which I don't understand fully. But Christ's example allows us to glean into the mystery of the divine light going, you know, being cast through the nail marks. And, and we are the recipient of that um, journey. And we're invited into, so, so our brokenness becomes a significant part of the new creation, but no longer, there are no longer tears fitting them. They're, they're God's, you know, gold fitting them. Um, this, this is like mind blowing. And, and the Kintsugi master that I work with in Tokyo, he is not a follower of Christ, but when he starts to talk about the fragments um, in a Kintsugi workshop, and he says, you know, you, you came to this Kintsugi workshop to fix what is broken. And he says, we're not going to do that. You know, people are like, what, you know, what are you talking about? And he says, no, we're going to name the fractures first. We're going to behold. <laughs> and, and I, when I first encountered this at, at his um, workshop in Tokyo, I turned to my friends and said, oh my goodness, you know, what would happen if every church did that? Instead of trying to fix you, you they welcome your brokenness and say, we're going to look at your fragments because they're beautiful. What would happen? And, and I, I just I got very moved by him. And he began this workshop that we, we now have a Kintsugi kit that you can order online, uh, kind of a DIY thing because of the shutdown. But, um, and, you know, the, the, these, these are designed by him to make this venerable tradition accessible to anybody because he felt after the 311 tsunami and earthquake disaster in Tohoku, Japan, that he felt compelled to go up to the regions where there were orphan children, where fishing villages were washed away in a single instance, losing generations um, of their grandparents and, and parents. Uh, they were orphan children. And he wanted to do Kintsugi workshop with them. Um, and Japan lacquer is made from poison sumac, so it's not, you know, appropriate for just anybody to use. Um, so he came up with his own method of using cashew-based Japan lacquer, which is what he calls new urushi, uh, that dries in three hours rather than six months, so that children can do kintsugi, bringing their broken ceramics or toys. And this is how Kintsugi Academy began. And as we celebrate the 10th year, 10th commemoration year of that uh, earthquake, and as we approach 20th uh, uh, commemoration of 9-11, you know, I, I think this uh, Kintsugi um, metaphor and the actual practice of it uh, can help tremendously to find, uh, help us to find healing in a broken, polarized time. One thing I love that you talk about in your book about this is how the the mended bowls in many ways have greater value than yeah. because you're you're adding yeah. this gold to them. Yes. And so you talk about how you know the narrative arc of scripture is creation, fall, redemption, and then a lot of times it's restoration. It's articulated right. that way. But but really it's not just restoration, like, oh, everything's gonna be fixed and back to the way it was at the beginning. Right. It's new creation. It's yes. it's greater. It's more expansive, yes. um, and and to think about that will retain our fractures, but mm -hmm. they will be part of our glory. Yes. It's not just going to be, yeah. but they won't yeah. hurt us anymore. They will actually be part of our glory. Like that's yeah. an amazing thing that we get to behold in these works. Yeah, and you know what we we have this tendency to want to get back to normal, you know, today, like we're talking about getting back to normal, getting back to normal, but, and, and that, that, that can be um, a part of uh, Edenic consciousness, right? That we want to get back to Eden, but we're not destined for Eden. You know, we're destined for God and city uh, of God. And so 
and and that world uh, involves uh, creativity and imagination and our hands getting dirty and working the soil and building something. Um, and it's it's incredible to me how we uh, first of all we missed this that part <laughs> you know when we talk about the gospel we talk about jesus's death and resurrection and and which is obviously this at the heart of the gospel but we uh you know we act as if nothing happens after that and, and so all we can do is to tell our neighbor about what happened in the past rather than create into the the city the city garden of god and and so we we kind of miss the whole narrative of why we are Christians, why we, we follow Christ today, post-resurrection journey that leads to beyond Pentecost and beyond ascension into, you know, w- w- what we are supposed to be doing. And um, Christians have this distinct privilege of looking at bro- brokenness and saying that this is an entry point into the new. And we can not only we you know not only we can inspire people to think that way, but we can actually create be part of the new creation on this side of eternity, as you know in Christ we are new creation. So you know I I I think I, I get very excited when I talk about this because no matter what we have gone through. Uh, every moment is a genesis moment every moment is you know is an entry point into the new and so you know the, the deep frustrations and uh, you know despair that we feel um at, at this time in our history um and and yet i can't stop from thinking that all of us, right, in our journey, if we, can, if we can bring out those brokenness, in a sense, to be made vulnerable uh, in front of safe communities, um, that that will bring so much healing um, to the to a world that you know previous past, you know, um, we stoically hid those things, you know, to wear masks to pretend like nothing ever happened um, and, you know, super glue it back together. So we, we are together, you know, um, when we can be open and vulnerable, when com- communities can become safe for that journey, I, I think it's it's going to s- accelerate the, the message of God's grace into the world. And, and, you know, and, and that, that can happen in every sphere, um, not just in, in the physical location of the church, but in, in culture at large as well. So a, bit, a book that impacted me a lot, what you're talking about there is Henry Nouwen's uh, Wounded Healer. Yes. And how he talks about when you have your wounds on display, God will bring people to you so you can specifically just you're a little bit ahead of him, but you can walk with him through that journey. Yes. And I can see that definitely in the art that you're talking about right now, too. Absolutely. A beautiful representation of that. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I'm a pastor and, you know, I've done the academic thing. I've been in that realm, too. And now I'm in ministry uh, for the time being. And and when I when I talk to people about art and I run into those artist subjective beauties and I beholder people. um, I can talk. I can talk to them in bigger picture and try to say, talk about beauty and the things that we talked about, but what, where have you found as an artist, like while you're explaining what you do and how you are living, what God has called you to do. And, and how do you explain that to like a lay person that's, that, that doesn't have seminary training or theology or anything like that? Yeah. I, I actually have the easier time explaining it to a lay person. <laughs> you know, like typical pragmatist, um, universe you know uh where uh i mean i it, it's amazing how it's related to how the gospel is is treated as as a you know kind kind of this uh in, instrument um uh to fix the world uh, you know and and again many of the programs and the way that we preach the gospel and you know communicate is not wrong it's it's just incomplete and and it takes the i think the joy out of it and 
And one one of the things that you know continues to haunt me is you know when I wrote the book Culture Care, that was a in a way um, you know public lectures I was giving when I was doing National Council on the Arts. I was speaking to you know people in museums and and I couldn't assume that they were Christians, but I had theological principles underneath it. So so I, I was writing those down and that eventually became my current book, Theology of Making. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I used to think about where's the fruit of the spirit in, in culture, you know? And when I thought about that and, and you know, as a leader in the church, um, you know, we, we ask these questions individually, like, you know, let's cultivate your fruit of the spirit, <laughs> kind of, you know, there are programs to do this, right? But we never ask, like, where's the fruit of the spirit in our community or in our culture? And if you ask that question, you know, is, is, do you see a, a stranger walking in the streets? You know, do you see in the church evidence of fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, <laughs> you know, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control? Most likely people are like, what? You know? I see the opposite, you know, I, I see hatred instead of love, you know, I see anxiety instead of peace, I see, you know, um, the, the, you know, this, the, this um, anger instead of self-control, I see, right, and, and you go down the list, and so when I realized that, like, the, at least the perception of the church in the world is completely the opposite of what we want to project, so what happened? <laughs> you know, like what went wrong, the, the, you know, from the recipe to, to the actual omelet, you know, and nobody wants to taste the omelet, it, it, you know. And so, so when I realized that, I, 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 was, I was kind of, you know, reverse engineering this and I, I said, okay, so we preach the gospel as, you know, good news to the world. And yet, how we live our lives, how our communities uh, project themselves, you know, and, and people said, well, well, that's the world, you know, right? the world is full of enmity and all that. Yeah, okay. So what about inside the church? <laughs> you know, how are we doing inside the church? You know, do people in our congregation see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness? There are huge exceptions. I can name a few, fortunately. But as a whole, the, the Christian project in 20th century did not produce the fruit. It produced many recipes, but they were never tested out into communities, into society, into culture. So that's what theology of making is attempting to do, is, is to get back to the gospel that, that is fully old, you know, I rely on anti Wright's theology because I think, you know, his, his books have been so helpful to me. And, and when I started to correspond with him and, you know, he would answer my one paragraph of, of questions with, you know, multi-pages of answers, <laughs> you know, I was like, you know, really just, blown away by um, by how he so wanted to be in a conversation with an artist to you know to flesh out his theology and 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 for me I needed you know him uh, his theology as well as Miroslav Wolf uh, as well as Ellen Davis uh, you know so many of these um, beautiful uh, thinkers and then you know I realized, Okay, so if we were to get back to ground zero and, and begin this Christian project again, you know, what would that look like? And, and so, so the part of the journey of theology of making is to, to you know, communally, right, to, to think about that and, and just remove the shackles, let's say modernist shackles, and, and, and just say, okay, so if you can transcend modernism in some way and, and, get back to the, you know, not only the basics, but what has been generated through 
sciences and technology and, and all that we have today, you know, how can we re-envision uh, the kingdom of God in, in a community? What does that look like? And, and so those, those are larger questions that um, I, I would ask. Um, and, and, and to answer your question, I think without that piece, we will forever be, you know, uh, arguing, you know, it's saying who's right, who's wrong. Well, it's irrelevant who's right or who's wrong, first of all. But, uh, but also we don't have the language to speak about these issues um, uh, effectively and communicate something uh, that is deeply mysterious. And perhaps there is no answer to, but, but you know, we can still journey together in, into, into the unknown. One thing that I love about your work, and you and I have talked a little bit about this because we have yeah. a mutual love for Soren Kierkegaard's work. Yes, works <laughs> a lot, yeah. Yeah, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot and am doing some research on it on hermeneutics, particularly the hermeneutics of suspicion, yes. um, and looking phenomenologically at our dispositions towards the world and how that allows us to see how it unveils mm -hmm. things or it conceals things, you know, yes. and there's a, an ingrained disposition that we have as moderns of suspicion towards yes. the world. And mm -hmm. I would say this is just as true for the church <laughs> um, oh, as it is for for the rest of the world and and you see this in in art you see a lot of modern artists that portray a vision of the world yes. from a disposition of of suspicion yes. and ingrained wariness you know um and then you even see the church's rejection of art <laughs> um on the yes. basis of the same ingrained yes. wariness and suspicion yes. Um, whereas acquiring a gaze of love yes. just changes everything so much. And it's, mm -hmm. it's so invitational. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I see you doing. And, and in a sense, one of my favorite phenomenologists says that Christians are able to see phenomena that is disclosed through revelation mm -hmm. that the rest of the world may not see, that's but right. then we can present it to the world. Mm -hmm. We can, yeah. we can invite the world to see yeah. these phenomena as well. And so it's hospitable, it's invitational yeah. and which is much more akin to this culture care as opposed to culture war. And so anyway, I, how do you see yourself in those terms in this gaze of love versus suspicion? Yeah. As an artist? yeah. Oh, I thank you. Emma. I, I think, you know, you're getting to the heart of, you know, an artist walking into New York City um, in the mid nineties and realizing that beauty is, is not a word that you can use anymore. In fact, if you use that word, you, you will be corrected. And I decided to use beauty anyways, because, but, but in a sense from Japanese definition rather than a Western definition, right? Beauty that's connected to sacrifice, that's connected to brokenness. Um, and, and, you know, and I got away with it um, because I, I think part of what people were longing for in the world of suspicions is, is, is hope. You know, they they are still looking for something. Uh, they they realize the trauma that they've been through uh, cannot be corrected or accounted for by a typical superficial understanding of beauty or truth, right? Uh, they see institutions uh, such as the church fail, uh, abuse them. So they're reacting against something that is fundamentally true. And to, you know, so, so I walk into these conversations and I realize, first of all, I have much to learn from those people because they have, they're very serious thinkers. I mean, they're, they've been thinking, but, but when we, after 9-11, uh, open our little studio for a Monday, Thursday service of reading Works of Love by Kierkegaard, right? They, their response is not out of suspicion. Their response is, we need this because we need hope. You know, everybody is suffering and we need hope. We can't even paint, we can't even write. So we need to hear um, from, you know, uh, a source of love, right? And, and when, I also, when I experienced that, I, I, I came away thinking, well, first of all, you know, the spirit is alive in these people who are asking deep questions and, 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 and suspicious of institutions and culture and, and rightly so in many cases. But you can't just 
you know, give up just because, you know, and you, you can't really fall into the same trappings uh, because you do have, you know, the joy of the Lord is my strength. So I am going to walk into these situations believing that the Holy Spirit has gone ahead of me to, to allow a conversation that, you know, that they want to have, but they can't. Right. So you just you just call almost like throwing out permissions, you know, uh, you know, it's uh, like tell me about the God that you don't believe in. And and they tell you and I say, oh, I don't believe in that God either. So <laughs> it's, you know, let's be atheists together for a minute, you know, and, and towards your God, you know, <laughs> and, and we start to converse in a level that really understands the pain. But, but also bring something new into the conversation. So I, I, I've been doing this over and over um, through 9-11, through the fractures, through traumas and brokenness. And, and I, I, I think, you know, where I feel like where 2021, right, uh, can bring us to is, is a new kind of uh, collective language that because we have been through so much polarization, so much culture wars, so much ideological uh, lockdowns um, that I, I feel like the younger generation sees way beyond through that. Um, and, you know, great example is Amanda Gorman, right? The, the poet who, who spoke at the inauguration. Why were we so captivated by her voice? Uh, it's because the words were so um, dismantled in, in the past, right? So it was, it was used as a weapon to demonize others. She's coming in recognizing the fracture and she's, as a poet, you know, um, relying so much on Hamilton and so other, you know, hip hop uh, genres, which actually came out of 9-11 darkness. You know, uh, Emmanuel's uh, voice came out of 9-11, um, uh, uh, you know, Brooklyn. And, and so she is carrying that tradition, of course, Dr. King and all the, you know, civil rights leaders, but she's, she's speaking into the void and saying, I see you, I see your pain. And here is, here are my words, my humble offerings that, that can begin to mend, that can begin to speak and give, give hope and, and recognize, you know, hope in a way. Um, and, and so I, I feel like, okay, so there it is, you know, that, that, that is um, uh, a way that, you know, we have an opportunity today to move forward in culture, to do, to care for culture rather than to fight, keep fighting these culture wars, which, which is decimating to our souls. And, it doesn't work anyways. It doesn't work no, no matter which side you're, you're on. Um, so let's, you know, let's be really um, uh, willing to, you know, that, that, let's just hold off on arguing about recipes. Let's, let's see the fruit. And if the fruit is good, if the poem is good, and if we are elevated by it, then, then let's find out why that is so you know let's let's have a kind of education that that we we can too become poets of the word and and to be able to uh create something uh out of uh experience of trauma and and that 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 that, that is entirely possible and, and i think the technology allows it and in a new way um, we're having this conversation over zoom and who would have thought that we'll have so many podcasts over zoom <laughs> You know, a year ago, that was uh, almost unthinkable. Um, but, you know, I, here we are. And, and I think, uh, you know, I think this is the Holy Spirit's work to create something new into culture. And um, as, as we are faithful in that journey, uh, we will discover more ways, uh, more creative ways, more generative ways to, to speak into the fractures. Well, Marco, we just really want to uh, thank you for joining us and uh, thank you for all of the insights that you shared with us about art and, and in particular, the relationship between art and, and sorrow. Just uh, really found that to be quite moving and just really appreciated your discussion on that. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. 